In every great movie, where the the classic storyline is that of good versus evil, you need a hero, or maybe several heroes, right? And you need at least one bad guy. An evil villain who opposes the hero. Now, depending on the type of of story, this opposition by the villain may involve engaging the hero in direct combat or by pulling strings behind the scenes to cause trouble. It could include intimidating and stalking or throwing obstacles in the hero's path. Or by deceiving the hero, pretending to be an ally when they are not. And if you think about these these movies with a good versus evil theme, you can usually identify the villain. Right? You can usually identify the villain. But there are those occasions where it is not so obvious. As the cunning villain may first appear to be a hero who, like a Judas, seems to fool everybody. Last week, we finished Revelation chapter 12. A very symbolic chapter. Very symbolic. Whose common theme was largely devoted to the activities of Satan against Israel during the tribulation period. This morning we are moving on to our next chapter. An equally symbolic chapter where the Apostle John sees two very cunning villains partnered with Satan in this future end times conflict of good versus evil. So, if you have your Bible... Turn to Revelation chapter 13. Can you see that on the screen behind me? Okay. There you go. Turn the light off. That helps. Does that help? Okay. Okay. Revelation 13, and we will begin with verse 1. We're going to be here a while. Okay. Verse 1. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. 
Then I saw a beast coming out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten crowns, and on his heads were blasphemous names. Last week we talked about the dragon. Remember that? We talked about the dragon who was specifically identified as Satan. Remember that? Satan. And in this verse, John sees Satan standing on the seashore as if waiting for something. And sure enough, Something comes. A beast. An unnamed beast. Who we commonly identify as the Antichrist. Now we have talked about him before. And if you recall, the word Antichrist means against Christ, okay? That makes sense. Against Christ. And in the Greek, it also means in place of Christ. So the Antichrist opposes Christ. He is the villain in this conflict of good versus evil, and yet he initially presents himself as a hero. He presents himself as the Savior. During the breaking of the first seal, at the beginning of the tribulation period. The Antichrist is the rider on the white horse. And we all know that good guys ride white horses. Like a hero, he will bring peace to the Middle East. And make a way for Israel to rebuild their temple. The inhabitants of the world will love this guy because he seems to have all the answers to the world's problems. And because he is one of them. John said... He comes up out of the sea. And I don't think he's talking about salt water. Instead, I think it is symbolic. This is a very symbolic chapter. It is symbolic of the sea of humanity. The churning waters of multitudes of troubled people and nations 
and tongues. In other words, the sea symbolizes the Gentiles. And it's from the Gentiles that Satan will bring forth his Antichrist. John tells us this beast, this Antichrist, has ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten crowns. Again, this is very symbolic. I cannot stress this enough. This is symbolic. And if you recall the description of Satan as the dragon from last week, he too had ten horns and seven heads which I take to mean that the Antichrist is a chip off the old block. He is like his father. They come from the same stock. Although Satan is a fallen angel and the Antichrist is a man who at some point in his life, will be possessed by a powerful demon from the abyss. So what's up with the ten horns and the seven heads? Well, as you might imagine, this is open to a lot of speculation making it challenging, even confusing. But I think with some careful thought, some good Bible study, and some godly insight, I think we can figure it out. Okay? Let's first consider the ten horns and the crowns on them. In the Bible, horns represent power. Power. And the number 10 may be a literal number here, <clears throat> or it may be an expression symbolizing completeness. However, in context, in context here, I think the 10 horns actually represent 10 future powerful kings or kingdoms. Hence the crowns. And I say this because of some other references in the Bible that speak to this. First, let's look at Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verse 24. Should be on the board behind me. Daniel 7, verse 24. And we read, As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise. And another will arise after them. 
and he will be different from the previous ones and will humble three kings. Okay? Now, let's turn ahead to Revelation chapter 17, verse 12. Revelation 17, 12, where John tells us, the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom. In other words, their future. Okay. But they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour, a short time. Based on this, <clears throat> the Antichrist will come out of a future alliance of ten powerful kings or kingdoms. Or said in a contemporary way, he will emerge out of a union of ten powerful nations. Okay? A union of ten powerful nations. The Antichrist will be a leader within this union in some capacity. A leader amongst the other leaders. But in his rise to stardom and power, he will subdue three of the nations in this union, setting himself apart from the others as a super leader, setting his sights on world domination. So the ten horns represent a union of ten powerful nations. That's where the Antichrist will emerge from. Okay? But what about the seven heads? Well, that takes us a little deeper into the family tree. In the Bible, the head represents leadership. And when it comes to these seven heads, thankfully, the Apostle John gives us some help. In Revelation chapter 17, beginning with verse 7, excuse me, verse 9, we are told, Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And they are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. The other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. 
<laughs> totally clear. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I will clear this up. <laughs> first, of all, I don't want to. First, I don't want to chase rabbit trails here. But to avoid any potential confusion, okay, the woman symbolized here is not the same woman we talked about last week who represented Israel. Okay? This is a different woman, a harlot, who represents false religion during the tribulation period. And we will deal with her in a couple of weeks, okay? Anyway, back to the seven heads to clear this up for Kim. Okay, okay. We are told they are symbolic of seven mountains who are actually seven kings. Or better understood, okay, better understood... They are symbolic of seven great world empires, which are presented to us in sequential order, given in this way. Five have fallen. One is. The other has not yet come. Does that help, Kim? <laughs> okay, 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 okay. At the time of John's writing, at the time of John's writing, there were five great world empires that had previously fallen. Okay? They were Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greek. These were empires, Gentile empires, that ruled the known world. But they had all come and gone. Then there is the one that is. The one that would be in existence at the time of John's writing. And that would be, yes, the Roman Empire. These were great World empires that ruled the known world in the past. But then we are told there is one that has not yet come. A future empire. A seventh empire. And it's out of this seventh empire that the Antichrist will rise and create his own empire. In a roundabout way, 
John has symbolically given us the family tree of the Antichrist. He's like his father, Satan. He will emerge from this seventh world empire. An empire consisting of ten parts. A union of ten powerful nations. And because of the reference to blasphemous names, we know the Antichrist will stand in open defiance of God, claiming his own deity. So we have been given the origin of the Antichrist. We see where he comes from. Now let's move to verse 2. Finally, verse 2, okay? <laughs> to, get, to get to the description of his empire. Verse 2. And the beast, <clears throat> beast is the, is the Antichrist, and the beast that I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon... That'd be Satan, gave him his power and his throne and great authority. In this passage, John tells us the empire of the Antichrist, using, using symbolism gathered from a prophecy in Daniel chapter 7, where he tells us that the empire of the Antichrist will embody the characteristics of three previous world empires that opposed God and his people. Like a leopard. His domination of the world will be swift and quick. Like a bear, he will possess incredible power to crush his enemies. And like a lion, the Antichrist will be fearsome and have a ravenous appetite for conquest. The rule of the Antichrist will embody these qualities all the while empowered by Satan to lead the mother of all evil empires. In many ways, the Antichrist seems unstoppable. He is Satan's masterpiece. Master villain. But something incredible happens. Let's continue beginning with verse 3. <clears throat> John says, I saw one of his heads as if it had been fatally wounded. And his fatal wound 
was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war against him? Satan's desire has always been to be worshipped. He wanted to be like God. He wants to be God. And he is the great imitator of God. Masquerading as an angel of light. Everything good... God has ever done, Satan has tried to mimic in order to deceive the world, to even fool the elect. And just as God raised Jesus from the dead after he was crucified, just as God will raise the two witnesses from the dead, from the streets of Jerusalem, Satan is going to deceptively revive the Antichrist as if he had been fatally wounded. And the whole world is going to eat it up. The inhabitants of the world will be in awe of this deceptive death-to-life experience. In stark contrast to their denial of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. People who had refused to acknowledge that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, will be amazed and follow the beast because of this apparent miracle. Satan will deceive the whole world and people will worship him and follow his Antichrist. Now, beginning with verse 5, John tells us what the Antichrist does during the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. John says, A mouth was given to him speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months. That's three and a half years. Was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. That is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given to him over every tribe, people, language. And nation. All who live on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written 
since the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb, who has been slaughtered. Okay. During the last three and a half years, the Antichrist, now at full strength, demolishes all competing religion. He sets himself up in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and he demands to be worshipped. He speaks blasphemies against God. He creates his own cult. He establishes his own evil world empire. An eighth empire. And he makes war with the saints and overcomes them. Which would include the defeat of the two witnesses in Jerusalem. If you recall, the two witnesses had been protected by God during the first half of the tribulation period. But after their task is completed, the Antichrist will kill them and publicly display their bodies in the street for all the world to see. At this point, at the beginning of the last half of the tribulation period, the Antichrist demonically possessed and empowered by Satan, will have victory over the saints. Or said in another way, in this timeless drama of good versus evil, God lets the villains get the upper hand for a short moment. Now we come to verses 9 and 10, which speaks to the certainty of the things we have just talked about. And it says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. This passage teaches the inevitable coming of the unjust suffering of the saints through the Antichrist. And this is similar to what Jesus taught his disciples when he said, you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. Many believers will be locked up and many will be killed. But all are encouraged to endure and persevere. This is not fatalism, but rather our recognition and our submission to the sovereignty 
of God. In other words, these things must happen. So this Antichrist is truly a beast. He's a beast. But he has a trusty sidekick. Another beast. Let's continue with verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb. And he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. He makes the earth and those who live on it worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of the sky to the earth in the presence of people. He deceives those who live on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast. Telling those who live on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause all who do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. This is our introduction to the one called the false prophet. The right-hand man of the Antichrist. And he is the completion of the unholy trinity. Satan is the counterfeit father. The Antichrist is the counterfeit savior. And the false prophet is the counterfeit Holy Spirit. If you think about this one, One of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Christ and to lead people to trust and worship Him. In the same way, the false prophet will point to the Antichrist and compel people to worship Him. We're told He comes out of the earth Or the land, depending on your translation. If you recall, 
the Antichrist came from the sea, which I believe refers to the Gentiles. Okay? But this is not the case with the false prophet. He comes from the earth, from the land, which many believe is a reference to the promised land. Suggesting that he is of Jewish descent. Honestly, I don't know what to make of this one. I don't know. So, to play it safe, I think I'm just going to leave this one, we'll just call it a mystery. Okay? But in his vision, John tells us this beast, this false prophet, has two horns like a lamb. And if you remember, horns represent power. So he has some power. But the absence of a crown, the absence of a crown indicates that his power is not political or in the military realm. Instead, with the character of a gentle harmless lamb. He will be an influential religious leader who speaks with great authority, serving as a witness to the Antichrist. So you have a powerful religious leader in cahoots with a powerful world ruler. And together, they deceive and dominate the world. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 that in the end times, there would be many false prophets. And this one will be the most cunning of them all. John says this false prophet performs great signs. When Jesus ministered on the earth, Jewish leaders often asked him to perform some sign to prove he was indeed the Messiah. And Jesus refused. But the false prophet will perform great deceptive signs and miracles and even mimic some of the signs performed by the two witnesses, such as making fire come down from the sky. This brings up a good point. Don't assume, don't assume 
that just because people perform miracles, they are from God. Remember in the book of Exodus, just like Moses performed miracles before Pharaoh, initially, Pharaoh's own magicians did the same thing. Just like Moses, they turned their rods into serpents. Did they not? Just like Moses. They turned water into blood. And they brought frogs upon the land. So don't assume anything. So lastly in our passage, John tells us the false prophet makes an image or an idol, maybe a statue that represents the Antichrist. And he gives it breath and causes it to speak. This is what John sees in his vision, and it has prompted a lot of interesting speculation. Some have suggested this is some form of magic or an illusion, or maybe something similar to a hologram, or animatronics, or maybe even artificial intelligence. And that might be the case, given the deceptive nature of those involved. But my only sticking point with this, with these suggestions, my only sticking point, is that word breath literally means spirit. Presumably an evil spirit. It's my only sticking point. But whatever the case may be, however it happens, the inhabitants of the world will be compelled to worship this image of the Antichrist, and those who do not will be killed. Okay. If you think the last passage was a a head-scratcher, this next one is a real doozy, okay? So let's pick up, beginning with verse 16. And he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, and the free and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, 
And he decrees that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is six hundred and sixty six. Okay, here we go. This passage has probably created more speculation more conspiracy theories and more confusion than any other passage in the Bible. And I don't want to add to it. Simply put, from this passage, we can see that the false prophet in partnership with the Antichrist is going to control a global, likely cashless economy. And in in order to participate in this global cashless economy, is going to require that everyone have some kind of mark or number on their right hand or on their forehead, locations on the body which are typically publicly visible. Satan knows what the Bible teaches. And just as, this might come as a surprise, just as our faith is to be public, so this mark will serve a similar First, it will publicly identify those who participate in this global economy. But more importantly, the mark will identify those who publicly declare their devotion to the Antichrist. This will not be a situation where someone says, I did not know what I was doing when I took the mark. If the mark is taken, it will be no mistake, no accident, but the the result of a clear and deliberate choice. 
you will know what you're doing. Now on the flip side, refusing to take the mark will expose one to severe persecution. To include the inability to buy or to sell. Meaning, no purchase of groceries in the stores. No clothing. No medical services. No fuel. No electricity. No iPhone service. No nothing. No nothing. All transactions will be solely computerized and digital in nature and require access only by accepting the mark. John continues and says this mark is associated with the number of the beast, which is 666. Let me tell you, this number has drawn the attention of countless calculations. Throughout history, trying to unravel its mystery and discover the identity of the Antichrist. But despite all of the effort, we must admit that no one really knows its meaning. And unfortunately, in our fruitless effort to pick apart a three-digit number, we sidestep the terrible reality that a cruel test of faith is coming for many believers during this last half of the tribulation period. Imagine for a moment that you live in a day where confessing to be a Christian okay, is outlawed and punishable by death. Okay? Imagine that. You hide in your residence at night as the soldiers can be heard on the sidewalks and streets as people in your neighborhood are arrested, suspected of being a Christian. Suddenly, you hear a knock on your door. As you pray that the soldiers will pass you by, 
They force themselves through your door. You with me? Lights flash around the room. Boots stomp across the floor. And suddenly you find yourself staring in the barrel of an assault rifle. Tell me, shouts the soldier, pointing his rifle at you. Are you a Christian? You have a choice to make, don't you? Either deny Christ and live, or confess Him and die on the spot. Chances are, chances are, most believers, okay, like you here, most believers would like to think, of course. I'd confess Christ. That soldier can't threaten my faith in the Lord. That's what we would like to think, right? Okay. Let's twist the scenario a bit. Just a tiny bit. Imagine... That you aren't alone. Instead, when the soldiers barge into your residence, their weapons are not pointed at you. But at your spouse. Your children. Your grandchildren. Reject Christ or die. Or they die. Reject Christ or they die. Dying for your faith is one thing. But letting others die for your faith is a little different, isn't it? And yet, in a roundabout way, this is the kind of scenario Satan will inspire during the tribulation period as believing parents will have to choose between taking the mark and providing for their struggling family or refusing the mark in defense of their faith and thereby forcing their family to suffer the terrible consequence. And if you think That is too far-fetched. If you think I'm way out there, remember, something similar to this was actually being experienced in John's day. 
when the early church was confronted with the requirement to declare their devotion and worship to the Roman emperor or else. So this will be nothing new. It's coming again. As I look back at this chapter and see how the terrible future will unfold during this tribulation period, I can also clearly see today, today, that the stage is being set for this terrible future. As I see it, the wheels are already in motion. Case in point. Let me read this to you. Case in point. This comes from the New York Post in July 2019. I challenge you. Look it up yourself, okay? New York Post, July 2019. And I quote, Thousands of people in Sweden are having futuristic microchips implanted into their skin to carry out everyday activities and replace credit cards and cash. More than 4,000 people have already had the sci-fi-ish chips about the size of a grain of rice inserted into their hands with the, the pioneers predicting millions will soon join them as they hope to take it global. It's very black mirror. Swedish scientist Ben Liberton told the Post of the similarity to the TV series highlighting futuristic scenarios. Like glorified smartwatches, the chips help Swedes monitor their health and even replace key cards to allow them to enter offices and buildings. They have particularly caught on, however, by enabling owners to pay in stores with a simple swipe of a hand. A big deal in a forward-looking country that is moving toward eliminating cash. The microchips were pioneered by the former body piercer, Joan Osterland, who calls the technology a moonshot, who told Fortune magazine that he's been a hit He's been hit up by hopeful investors on every continent except Antarctica. 
I am not saying that this technology is evil. I'm not saying that, okay? But what I am saying is this. It's an indication that we are surely moving in that direction. It's just a hop, skip, and a jump before these things mentioned in Revelation 13 become a very real reality in our world. And so with that in mind, if I can leave you with a piece of advice, I want you to be clear-headed and mindful of these political, economic, social, and yes, even religious forces and pressures that tempt you to pull away from God. From His kingdom. From His will. And from the truth found in His word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time uh, in your word. I will admit uh, a very difficult, confusing word. But your word nonetheless. Father, I, I, I can see just how far we've come and just how you have set the stage for this terrible time that must happen. These things must happen. Father, wake us up. Help us, Lord God, to be people of the word of God and people in the Word of God. People who live by the Word of God. Father, I'm the first to admit it is so easy to get distracted. So easy. To have my mind on other things. To be focused on my kingdom. My kingdom. And how many times have I asked you, Lord, to fix my kingdom? More than I can count. When the truth is, it's not about my kingdom. It's about your kingdom and your will. Father, forgive me for losing sight of that. 
Father, give us a passion for you. Give us a hunger for your word. Give us a zeal for the things of God. Help us be people of the truth. I thank you for who you are and what you are doing. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm lightheaded after that one. (laughs) Oh, that was a lot. Yeah. You know, there, I mean, people write books just on chapter 13. And and so I will admit, I will, I will totally admit that was just the tip of the iceberg. Totally just the tip of the iceberg. If you want to talk about it more, I'd love to chat with you about it. May not have the answers, you see, but we can talk about it, right? But there's one thing that just kind of, you know, as I just kind of look, look through and just kind of run through this chapter, the common thread that just kind of comes through this whole thing, no matter which, which beast you're thinking of, no matter which beast, the Antichrist or the false prophet, the common thread is deception. It's just it's deception. My friends, let me just tell you, we are being lied to. We are being lied to. We are being deceived. I don't care what your I don't care what your political affiliation is. I don't care what what news you're watching. I don't care. They all have agendas. We are all being deceived. Every single one of us. And if you don't think you are falling for it, if you think you are above that, I see through it. I'm not deceived. I don't fall for their lies. Then I'm really speaking to you. You might be the most deceived if you think you're above it all. Right? That's the truth. We are being dece- we are being lied to, we are being deceived. Even more so today than ever. We have to be people of the truth. And we have to stand on the truth. And here's the fear. This is, this is where it gets so... I don't know. And I'm just as fault too. Uh, stand, below, stand in line behind me. I'm just as fault. I can watch something on TV and I know in my heart of hearts it is an absolute lie. Yeah, whatever. That's just how they talk. Ah, yeah, okay. I'm just going to turn the other way. Right? Just let it go. Just let it go. Not a big deal. It is a big deal. We are people of the truth. That's who we're supposed to be. People of the truth. And we need to start acting like it. 
Does that make sense? You have to be in your word. Jesus says, I am the way. And the what? The truth. The truth. We get so distracted on our circumstances, what's going on around us, that we lose sight of the truth of him. Don't we? I do it too. I do it too. I lose sight of the truth. He's got a name. His name is Jesus. He is the truth. I'm not saying we put blinders on. I'm not not doing that. I'm not doing that. We do need to be mindful of what's going on around us, but we can never lose sight of him. Does that make sense? I'm glad you were here this morning. I hope I didn't confuse you. There was a, there was a lot I just threw at you. I, I, I admit that. I admit that. There was a lot there. But I, ho- I hope it was meaningful to you. hope the Lord spoke to you. If you have a decision to make this morning... then be obedient and make it. And if that involves coming up here and chatting with me, I won't bite. Okay? If you're looking for a church home, come on up, let me know. We'd love to have you. We don't bite. If you'd like to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you want to know the truth, he's got a name. I'd like to introduce you to him. I know him. I'd like to share him with you. However the Lord leads you this morning, however it is, just obey him. That's all I'm asking. Oh, God, I'm so glad you all are here this morning. Let me, uh, let me close us in prayer. I'm going to pray for our offering. Just a reminder, our, our baskets are, are back there. And so feel free to, if you feel... So lad, um, drop your tithes and gifts and offerings back there. And then also I want to pray for our fellowship um, afterwards here. And um, so I feel like I forgot something. I don't know if I forgot anything. I don't think so. Okay, let me pray. Father, again, I thank you so much for your love and your mercy. You're a good father. You're our father. I'm just I, 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 Lord, I just, uh, I, I have a hard time. It's just, it's just so, it's just so, and it's a good hard time, Lord, that I have, we have a heavenly dad who just so happens to be the Lord God Almighty. And you desire to hear our voice. You long to hear our voice. It's mind-boggling, mind-boggling. And you love us beyond my comprehension but it's a reality it's a fact so Father I thank you for who you are and what you do thank you Lord for this this time of the service where we can give back what you've given to us Father as we give our, our gifts and our tithes and our offerings Father I pray that you bless the gift bless the giver Lord God help us as a church to use your money wisely. It is your money. It's not ours. Give us wisdom and insight, Father. 
And then, Father, for our fellowship afterwards. Father, I just pray it would be a sweet fellowship. Just a, just a good time with one another. To connect with one another. To experience your presence, Father, in the midst. Bless the food. Bless those who have brought food and prepared food. Bless it to our bodies, Heavenly Father. May you be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.